Um, today, I'm going to share a message that is uh, prophetic and practical. And not that the prophetic ministry isn't practical, but sometimes when we get prophetic things, we think, well, how do, what do I do with that? And so I want to give um, some thoughts prophetically about what really the Lord's been saying to us as a spiritual family, to our leadership team. And, and then I want to sort of dial us in on how we can apply some of these things in our lives. And so um, the last, I would say, month, month and a half, as we've been praying and talking uh, in our leadership environments, uh, we've really felt like the Lord has emphasized a couple points, a couple things very strongly. And, um, and one of them is that God wants to move with a massive revival. <laughs> he keeps emphasizing that to us. And he keeps speaking it to us in a variety of ways. Um, witness on the heart, uh, dreams, prophetic words. There's been times um, when we've been in the prayer room as a leadership team. And I remember just a couple weeks ago, Jeff and I were actually on the same passages, studying the same thing about how the Lord wanted to, to revive the heart of the bride. And, and so many times the Lord's been speaking with us about the issue of revival. And then the other thing that the Lord has really been emphasizing to us is the issue of humility. Everybody see humility. And, and so that's what I'm going to speak about today. And hopefully it's going to cut a, a, a path for us to, to go over the next six weeks and even this year as things um, continue to shake nationwide and, and really worldwide in some ways that we would um, take these words as um, a rudder that will help guide us through what's coming. And, and so before I get into the message, I want to give a Bible verse that doesn't specifically go with the message, but I think it's from the Lord. I was, um, in, a, uh, I was in Michigan this week in a church, and I was in their prayer room, and randomly, the Lord directed me to this verse in Isaiah, and I haven't been able to shake it. Um, I believe it applies to so much of what's being said in um, the public about what's happening in our nation. And, you know, um, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. Um, I had a, a friend who's a prophetic uh, minister. His name is Brian Guerin. Some of you would know him. And he had some words that he released um, over 2021. And one of the words the Lord gave him, he said, the only news you can believe is the good news. The only news you can believe is the good news. Well, that includes the mainstream media, but it also includes those like YouTube news guys. <laughs> The ones that have the real deal, you know, that they're really giving you the real thing that's being suppressed, it includes that group too. It includes all of those that are giving information right now because there are so many words, so many voices, but the only voice that matters is the voice of the Lord. Isn't that right? And um, the only way the church is going to find herself standing firm in the days ahead is by fixing her eyes and her heart on Jesus and his word. That's it. Not by buying into so many of the themes and the narratives that are being released in the public. Well, I was in that prayer room this week and I was looking at something else completely different. And the Lord directed me to this passage and I've wrestled over whether I'm going to share this but I'm just going to read this Bible passage and let it sit wherever it needs to sit. Amen. So I, I applied it in my own heart and I'm applying it to my own heart. I hope this ministers to you. It's Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. It's not even on the screens. These guys don't have it. It wasn't in the notes. Yeah, if you want to look over at it, it's, sometimes it's helpful to get your eyes right on it. They were, maybe they would... I thought they were about to surprise me and put it up there, but. Isaiah 8, verse 11, I'm sharing this honestly with a heart of trembling, but I wanna be faithful. 
Isaiah 8, verse 11. I'm just gonna read the passage and let the word speak for itself. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord said, do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary. He will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face, but I will hope in him. Okay? Amen. That's the one that, you, that's the cue where you're supposed to jump up and down and run around the room right after that. <laughs> Let that one settle in you. I encourage you to meditate on it. Ask the Lord what he speaks to you about it. Amen. All right, let me, uh, let me pray one more time. Ask the spirit of revelation, the Lord to release the spirit of revelation, and then let's look at this, this word on humility and revival. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we gather to hear your heart, to hear your word. We want to hear what it is the spirit of the Lord is saying. And even that word from Isaiah 8, we want you to be the one we reverence. We want you to be the one that we fear, not fearing any of the voices that are so loud in our society right now. We look to you, and they that look to you, their faces are radiant, and they're never put to shame. So Holy Spirit, right now I ask, bring us under the authority of heaven. Bring us under the authority of your word, and let your word be like a hammer that breaks the rock. Let it be like a fire that consumes us. And I ask you, help me to speak your word with clarity. Help me to get out of the way. So what it is that you're saying is what remains. And Jesus, we set our hearts towards you. We set our eyes on you. We thank you for ministering to us these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, over the last several months, the Lord's continued to emphasize to us that he wants to release a move of his spirit, a mighty revival. I am convinced of this. God is not through with America. Can I get a better amen right there? God is not through with America. Um, some would say we're a post-Christian nation, and maybe from a sociological standpoint, maybe that's true. But in the heart of the Lord, he has plans and purposes for this nation. He wants to repossess his church in this nation. He wants to put his son and the worship of his son at the center of the church in this nation. And he wants to move in power all across this nation so that Jesus is the name on every tongue in America. So it's not the name of a political figure. It's not the name of a sports entity. It's not the name of uh, uh, an entertainer. It's the name of Jesus Christ. I believe that's what's in the heart of the Lord. Now, biblically, it's evident that there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will stand before the Lord. I've got very strong biblical truth to stand on when I say that God is not through with America. I could say that about every single nation, but it seems to me that God raised up this nation to release the gospel throughout the nations of the earth, and he's not just going to ball her up like a piece of paper and throw her in the garbage at the end of the age. Amen. And so he's got a plan for America. That's not finished. I believe there will be a third great awakening in America. 
We've seen a first great awakening. We've seen a second great awakening. If you don't know that history, I would encourage you, study that history. It will stir your heart. It will encourage your faith. But there's something coming, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen before. I love that word, uh, that song, you know, tsunamis of revival are crashing on the shore. (laughs) What does that even look like? Well, I'm convinced that the power bases of society are going to shift and flip, and God's going to repossess America with his presence. Amen. Amen. And so we need, you know, we really do need a vision of what that can look like. We, we, need a, um, we need to retake that word revival for the kingdom because I think it's been used so much that it's lost a bit of its holiness. And so when we talk about revival, when, when our leaders are talking about revival, I'll tell you what we're not talking about. We're not talking about one week of special meetings. We're, we're not talking, because, you know, that's a thing. In the church, they might say we're going to have a revival on such and such date, and we're going to have it all week. And that's, that's good. And, and the idea is it's a time of returning, and, and it's, it's a good thing. I'm not throwing shade on that, but I'm saying when we're, when we're talking about it, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're not even talking about something that's localized in one local church. When we're describing revival, we're talking about something that is comprehensively impacting the church throughout a region, and it is awakening the lost in that entire region. Not just special meetings in one place like we've seen in Toronto, Brownsville, uh, you know, even North Georgia, we, we so love those moves of the Spirit. Those are moves of God. But we believe there is something dramatic that the Lord wants to unfold and release that is going to shake the power bases of the entire nation, okay? And so when we're talking about that, we're talking about something of biblical proportions. And we want to regain the holiness of that word. Because revival, a simple way to say it, is when God steps down. I love what Arthur Wallace, who's a, he's a great revivalist and author, what he says um, in his book, In the Day of Thy Power, he says, revival is when God takes the field and all flesh retreats to the background. Now just imagine that for a moment. <laughs> What would it look like if God took the field in church? What would it look like if he took the field in the school system? What would it look like if he took the field in the entertainment sector, in in the financial sector, in the business sector? What would it look like if God took the field in a way like what we see in the scripture where flesh just bows? Where, where, like, when, when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, uh, uh, you know, uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not even stand to minister. What would that look like if that hit the grocery store? Come on, somebody. If it hit GGC. See, he's, he promises. He says, I can do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. What have you ever thought uh, when, you've, when you've let your mind just sort of run wild with the potentiality of the gospel going forth with power in, in our nation or in our, in, our, in our community or, you know, when you've let it just go to the edges, what have you dreamt of? He says, that's a really cute dream. I can do so much more than that. He says he does exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even think. And so I, I, I've set the sort of the, the bar of my faith, and, I, and, I, and I'm believing for a million people born again, hallelujah, just in our city. <laughs> I mean, I just start, I, I start wobbling in faith after that, Mark, but I go, okay, a million born again just in Atlanta. And, and I believe, I, this is the, the, the phrase that the Lord challenged me with years ago, a 50-mile demon-free zone what that could look like. We're literally outside the zone. There's oppression, sickness, 
pain, inside the zone, there's deliverance, healing, and the glory of God. And they go, man, you just got to get near Atlanta. (laughs) Now you're getting the vision. You just got to get near it. And I just envision people driving. They're coming up 75, and they hit somewhere down there. Somewhere below Peachtree City, they hit it, and boom, something hits their car. Whoa, pull over, pull over, because revival is hitting the car. The priest could not stand to minister. The drivers could not sit to drive. Seriously. I know that makes good preaching points, but that's literally what I pray for. That they go, I don't know what's really going on over there in that city, but if you'll get the cancer people the cancer patient, if you just get him in the zone, God, God will heal them. If you get the AIDS person just in that zone, God will deliver them. What is the incurable disease? Just get it close. And God's glory is raining down and Jesus is glorified. See, I think it has to be, it has to proliferate at that level for it to be nameless and faceless. You know, there's a, there's a place where it goes in the spirit to where It doesn't matter who's praying. It doesn't matter who's laying the hand because his body is now moving in his glory. So when we're talking about revival, we're talking about something on that scale. You see? Not just a a few special meetings or something. Well, God's going to release that to America. I'm convinced of it. And it is going to shake all the power bases. Now, here's the thing. I think he's going to shake us so that we cry out, so we humble ourselves and cry out so that he can shake everything again. Because you have to think about this. The transition that has to happen in the earth for the church across the nations to look like Jesus, to be a comparable bride to Jesus, the shaking, the transition that has to take place, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's maximal. I mean, it's comprehensive. There has to be a wholesale shift of, of how we act, how we think, how we live. I don't think we're going to be, you know, just Christian perfectionists. But, I mean, there is something coming on that's going to make us look a lot more like him than we've looked so far. And he's going to marry the bride, and she is going to look just like Jesus. And so there's, there's dramatic things getting ready to happen in the earth unto that end. Well, interestingly, the two verses the Lord's given me um, are verses that basically we all know. <laughs> They're verses that you, if you've thought about revival at all, you probably have bumped into these verses somewhere sometime. But I was, I was emboldened on this message because I heard this interesting story and, and then I, I looked it up and it was, it's true, but I'll just give it to you. There's a, there's a prophetic minister um, who honestly leading into the elections was very focused on uh, prophesying about the elections and, and, and this party or that party and that's just not my flow so I really hadn't paid attention at all to, to what this, what this uh, minister was saying. But what happened was this, he got very sick, he got COVID, he got very sick, and then he was in bed for several, several weeks, and then he got better, and this is happening right around the end of October, beginning of November, and when he gets better, he, he, the first day that he got up out of his bed, he, he just thought, I'm going to walk across the room and go sit in my chair, just barely had any strength in him, and he goes and sits in his chair, and when he does, he immediately goes into a heavenly encounter. Well, for the next two weeks, he was having daily heavenly encounters where he was talking to Jesus. He was seeing Jesus and talking to him. And so he's imagining Jesus is going to give details about the upcoming election and all these things that are flowing around in the, in the news cycle and the underground news cycle and the YouTube guy or whatever. And Jesus doesn't talk about any of that. What Jesus is talking to him about In this encounter he had, Jesus was talking about the coming kingdom, his return, the the shaking that's going to happen in the earth. And he was talking about global revival. That's what Jesus was talking about. And so finally, after a number of these encounters, 
this minister, he said, he, said to the, he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, what about everything that's going on in America? And the Lord just kind of looked at him and said, the prescription for America is the same as it's always been. Second Chronicles 7.14. And that verse, for so many in the charismatic movement, for so many revival and prayer people, that verse has almost become like last year's news. I mean, just old, you know, just trite, just so used to that. But the, it was odd because the Lord had been putting that verse on my heart for three or four months at the end of last year. And I'm going, well, I, I know this one. I know this one. And, and, and I just felt like he was going, you do not know this. And he always has to bring me back. You ever have that where God directs you to the verse that you know? And he'll direct me to the verse. I already know that one. He goes, you don't know what you think you know. And so, I'm so I decide, okay, I'm going to stare at this passage. Well, let me just read it. And I'll just give a thought or two on it. And then I'll move to another one. But 2 Chronicles 7.14, it's just, it's the prescription for revival. I believe it's the answer for America. It's God, it's what God is saying over America right now. He says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. We know this passage, and I just want to confess that I have read this passage so wrong for so many years. I read it, and I see, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, but then all of a sudden, I just start doing the math on it. Well, the people of God, they're not the ones that really need to turn from their wicked ways. It's really those sinners out there, all those lost people, the abortionists, and all those people making laws to, to facilitate same-sex marriages, and all those drug addicts, they all need to turn. And I would read it like, if those people who are out there would finally humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then God would heal the land. And it's just not what it says. In fact, I've, I've literally preached and seen others preach this passage and then immediately bounce to talking about all the sins of the nation that are out there somewhere. Instead of seeing this passage as a prescription for the wholesale healing of everything that's out there by dealing with what's going on in here. And to say it differently, by dealing with everything that's going on in here. He says, if my people who are called by my name, hard stop, it's not about anyone else. Beloved, it is not about anyone else. It's about us. It's about the church. It's about the people of God really dealing with what's going on inside of our own hearts, inside of our communities. It's about us dealing with us. And it's not about one part of the church pointing at the other part of the church. It's you and I dealing with you and I. If my people who are called by my name, that called by my name is such a loaded, loaded phrase. I thought, oh my gosh, I could do an entire series on what it means to be called by the name, named after God, carrying the nature and the glory of God upon you. I mean, there's so, that is, that is so rich right there. It's too much because if I started going into that, I would take such a detour and we wouldn't actually get to the rest of this. The name, if my people who are named after me, I think about the Ephesians 3. The, uh, he says, I bow my knee to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We carry a name on us. He goes, if my people called by my name will humble themselves, Humble themselves. And I've approached this passage many times, and I go, yes, God, help me, humble me. He goes, you humble you. <laughs> That's what I said. He goes, you humble you. 
I go, I need grace. He goes, humble yourself. I give grace to the... I go, ah! He goes, "Uh uh-huh. He's been working on me. I'll just say the last, last couple months, he's been working on me. In some areas, I'm just going, oh, no, that's not a big deal. He goes, I see it. Son, I see it. You're praying this, this, and this, but this right here is in the way. But I, and I go, but God, compared to somebody else, he goes, I'm not comparing you to somebody else. I'm talking to you. And he starts, he's been dealing with me. And the, the picture I had was like this hollowing out of a log with a, one of those knives where you're just kind of, you know those knives that kind of whittle stuff? I could just see him just hollowing me out. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And he gives a little mini sermon. Pray, seek, and turn. That's the kind of humility he's asking for. Prayerful, seeking, repentant humility. Prayerful, seeking, repentant humility. It gives right there the, what I think of as the rep- recipe for revival. It's, it's humility, holiness, and hunger. It's right there. He goes, if you will do that, he promises. He goes, I will hear. I will forgive and I will heal. And this is the vision I want you to get. When I'm saying all these wild visionary ideas about revival, I want you to get this vision. God promises to heal it out there and do a wild move of the spirit that's comprehensive, that is really beyond even the vision that I'm talking about. He goes, I will heal the land everywhere if my people will humble themselves. And I'm just saying there is a spiritual transaction that God's offering the church that if the church will get humble right now and get low right now, if we'll repent right now of our wickedness, he will, crea- it will create a kind of like a, a, a ricochet effect that will cause something to happen throughout the earth that's comprehensive, but it's incumbent upon the people of God to humble themselves and pray. It's so easy, I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me when I hear a message like this, I, I just, I mean, this, this is how much I need to be hollowed out. I start thinking, oh yeah, so-and-so, they really need to hear this. I wish they were here. I'm gonna text them right now. Hey, you, you, you can look at this online. He's talking to you. That's a word for you. I'm, I, I know it's cute. It's not cute. It's real. I'll just, here, can I just confess a little sin? (laughs) You're like, what? Yeah, here, (laughs) we'll just do it. My wife and I, we decided, oh, New Year, we're gonna do something different. We're gonna gonna shift in the way that we're, you know, um, approaching some of the truths in scripture. We're gonna do something different. And so we went to do this thing. I don't even wanna say what it was. We went and do this thing. So we go do the thing within the first hour. I'm doing the thing, and in and, and the first hour, I'm thinking, man, so-and-so really needs to do this. I'm not even an hour in, and I'm starting to line up people in my mind and judge them for not doing the thing that I've now been doing for 45 minutes. <laughs> it's so bad. And I was like, Lord, I mean, so I, I did that for about 30 seconds, and the Lord goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm here doing the new thing. He goes, no, in your mind, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm judging everybody self-righteously. He goes, how long have you been doing this? I'm like, 45 minutes. <laughs> he goes, no, son, no. No one will ever see that, but I see it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. One of the verses the Lord highlighted to me in the last couple weeks, Isaiah 58, verse nine, it's not in the notes. You can just look at it. He goes, he goes, you will call to me and I will answer. I will answer, he basically says, I'll answer speedily with power if, watch this, if 
you will put away the pointing of the finger. We have been trained to point the finger at everyone else, to call everyone else out. We're in this culture of accusation, this culture of outrage. Anytime you see one person do one thing that's crazy, there's a pile on spirit. And we've been so, I'm just gonna say it, demonically trained to point the finger at others. That should not be a thing for the people of God. If you'll put away the pointing of the finger, and then he says, and the doing of wickedness. He says, that judgmental attitude is wicked before me. He goes, put it away. He goes, then I will answer your prayers. Here he says, I will hear. You see something? There, maybe there's, maybe one of the key reasons why we don't see the inbreaking of God and the power of the answered prayer is because we are so wrapped up in these internal sins, we don't even realize it, that it's stopping God's ears from hearing our prayer. And I'm not gonna stand here and justify myself and say, beloved, you really gotta get this right. We've done, the church, we've done, a, we've done that a lot pointing at everybody else's problem. Look, it's our problem. Whatever the sins are you see out there, there are sins. Whatever the sins you see with that other church, that's your sin. Just own it. That's your brother and sister. That's us. We're responsible. Take responsibility. Ask God to investigate here first and get that thing hollowed out. He says, if my people, if my people will humble themselves. What I realize is this, in America, you know what? It's hard for us to be humble. We're so American. We're so entrepreneurial. We're so self-made. We're such revolutionaries. Meekness sounds like apostasy because I'm asking you to do something. The Bible calls us to do something that's opposite from the doctrine of Americanism. Humble yourself. There's a, there's a verse in Philippians. It's just been eating me up. Philippians 4, verse 5. I, I mean, I'm sitting the whole Bible in front of me. I don't even know what to do with that. He says, let your gentleness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. I go, well, but I thought the church in the generation which the Lord returned, we're going to have to be bold. We're going to have to be strong. We're going to have to fight. He goes, you're thinking about this completely opposite. You're, yes, you're gonna fight. You're gonna fight for the, the testimony of the gospel. You're gonna fight by laying yourself down. Remember, when Jesus went to the cross, if you were ever gonna take up a sword and fight for anybody, you'd be fighting for God in the flesh. Like, that makes a ton of sense, naturally speaking. Peter pulls the sword, starts swinging it, Jesus is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, Lord, we're fighting. Take the kingdom by force. You said that. He goes, no. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Put it down. Put it down. And there is a power in laying yourself down a meekness and a gentleness that is Jesus that we have no conception of almost. We fight in the spirit. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against demonic powers and principalities in the heavenly places. What if the church took her corporate energy and the authority that's been granted us in the cross and we put all of that effort into dethroning a principality over a region? What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen if my people who were called by my name would humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. He goes, I would hear and the land would be healed. Second verse I want to give you. Man, I hope I can make it through this. Maybe I won't. Maybe I should give you the altar call now. <laughs> Isaiah 57. Verse 15, this one has just continued to be on me.
For thus says, just get, you, just get around these phrases. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. That, that is the epitome of irony. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite, that word means literally crushed into dust and humble spirit. And I look at these phrases and I think, wow, he makes it so clear. He goes, I'll release revival to the broken one, to the crushed one, to the humble one. But the way he describes it is so, it's just, oh, he goes, I'm the high and lofty one or the high and exalted one. It's another way of saying, I am the most high one. I am the ancient of days. He goes, I inhabit eternity. It's another way of saying, I'm from forever. The highest one who is everlasting. He goes, oh yeah, you need to know this about me. I am holy. I'm not like anyone else. I'm completely other than anyone else. I'm pure. I'm clean. I'm all fire, I'm all glory, I'm all wonder, I'm all beauty. I'm pristine in all my ways. I'm holy, it's my name. And then he says this, he goes, I like to sit down in a certain place with a certain people. So let's show you what he says. He goes, I love to hang out and dwell in a certain place with a certain people. And I go, okay, okay, tell me. You who are great, you who are awesome, you, you who are fire, the all-consuming fire God, where do you want to hang out? He goes, I dwell. I go, okay, okay, you're going to sit down with somebody. That word dwell means to sit, to abide. Everybody, you know, <laughs> preachers for years, they say, I'm not looking for a visitation. I'm looking for a habitation. You know, and everybody goes, hey. Well, this is the habitation. He goes, I dwell. Where, where do you dwell? Where do you dwell? He goes, I dwell in the high and holy place. I go, okay, there's an exalted place in God that's, that's a pure, pristine, transcendent place. Where is it? He goes, I dwell in the high and holy place with the contrite and the broken and the humble. And I just think, I go, oh my gosh, the highest one dwells. He sits down in an exalted place with the lowest people. And he goes, and I do something when I'm there. What, what do you do? I resuscitate them. I revive them. I breathe my spirit into them. And I abide among them. And beloved, I just know this. Before this thing is said and done, the people of God are going to be so clearly marked by humility, it will be so easy to discern them from the rest of everyone else. Humility. Why? Because he's the most humble one there is. The most highly exalted one is the most humble one. And he's going to have a bride who's humble just like him. There's a passage in Zephaniah 3, you can read it for yourself. The Lord says, basically he says this, I'll just paraphrase, when I'm finished judging my people, he goes, I will remove all the wicked from my people and there will remain a humble people in the land. If there's something I'm clear about, and there's, there's many things that I don't understand, let me just be very, very clear on that. But if there's something I'm clear about, one of the key reasons 
for the shakings of this past year and they've continued, things have continued to shake. One of the key reasons for the shakings is God wants to humble his people. And then I'll just be honest, one of the things that burdens me so greatly, so deeply, is to see that in the shakings, the people of God have become more bold about things, but not the gospel. They've become more bold about political positions. They've become bold about, do you, should you wear a mask or not? Like, are we really fighting over this? Why is that even a point? They've become bold about, like Isaiah 8 says, conspiracy theories and conflated it with the gospel. And I don't believe the Lord's speaking about any of that. He's saying, be bold about being humble. Be bold about going low. Be bold about putting your face to the ground, your hand to your mouth. There's something happening in me right now. I'm resonating with Ecclesiastes 5 where he says, when you come into the house of God, don't come in with a big rush like you've got an attitude and don't come in spouting a bunch of words off. Let your words be few. Because God is in the business of raising up a bride. And we're gonna look just like him. And to whatever extent we fastened ourselves to other things that are not him, he is going to break our hands from those things. Because there's a massive revival coming. <laughs> See, all these, all these points, they're not in contradiction. They actually all work together. The shaking, the humbling, the reviving. It all works together. But we've got to kind of discern where we are in this process and then say, okay, Lord, be it unto me according to your will. And the Lord, I feel like he's just playing limbo right now. He says, how low can you go? <laughs> way down low, all the way to the floor. Can you do all that? <laughs> you know, he's really, no, he really is. I mean, I'm being silly a little bit, but he really is like, get down, get further down. I go, I think I'm down. He goes, no, no, you're not down yet. Further down, son. I, but I, I really am. I mean, my knees. And so he goes, no, no, face. I go, but my face is like, it's right there, like the ground's going. He goes, nose to the ground. My face to the dust, Job said. There's something he's wanting from us that would transform us to be like him. Amen. All right. That's the best I can tell you what I feel like the Lord is putting on my heart right now. It's revival and humility. It's where we're going. I think that's the thrust of where we're supposed to head this year. Even so many of our, of our conversations and our, and our preachings, we're gonna head that way in the next several weeks. But even this year, humble, humility, meekness unto this move of the spirit that God wants to release. I'm not prophesying it's 2021. I don't know, but I think it's coming real soon. But let's just pivot for a minute and let's just, now let's just have this discussion. How do we humble ourselves? Let me just, can I just give you a handful of, of thoughts of how we humble ourselves? I think there's probably a dozen or more verses that give you different aspects of how to humble yourself. I put like six in the notes. So there's probably a much, I know there is for sure, a much broader conversation, but these are the ones that stuck out to me. And so I want to give them to you, and I, and I put a lot of verses in the notes to be a help so you could take the notes and study them and, and then let it spiral out into a bunch of other things. But let's just look at these. Um, how do we then humble ourselves? The first one, and this is really the, this is the, 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 the magna. This is the big one. Like if you don't do this one, don't even worry about doing the other ones because all the other ones come out of this one. The primary way that you humble yourself is by looking at Jesus. It's by beholding Jesus. And what do I mean by beholding Jesus? I mean like literally shutting off all the voices, getting the Bible verses that talk about what he's like, and then just considering him. Closing your eyes and, and allowing the truths of the cross of his servanthood, allowing the truths of his humility to just 
play over in your divine imagination. Get the Bible verses, read the passages, and then just step right in the story with him. So 2 Corinthians 3, it says this, that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, were being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The point is this, the more we look at him, the more we become like him. That's the point. And this really has to boil down to this, that on a daily basis, we really do look at him. Like we really do. We sit down, we get the Bible verses open, or if you've got them memorized, you get them in your mind, and you you close your eyes before him, and you consider him. Sometimes I'll just walk through the process of the arrest in the garden, the beating you know, in the praetorium, the Via Dolorosa. I'll just walk through it in my mind. I'll just picture it all. Jesus beaten, bloodied for me. The crucifixion, I'll just walk through all of it in my mind. And I put the passage there in your notes, Matthew 26 to 28. See, that's one of the ways I behold him is I behold the cross. And I just think you can't get, you, you, just, you just can't get better than that. And I always come to the conclusion. I, I mean, it just, I just come to the conclusion after I see God beaten, bloodied, dying on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them that there's something in his heart that's not in mine. That his delight in people and his, his ass- assessing me is worth dying for, it's so much deeper in him than it is in me and I need to, I need to get that. That transaction of the perfect one being crushed for the imperfect one that that just, be, it just begins to work me. You can't, you can't distance yourself from the cross. You don't move on from the cross. We live under the blood of that cross, man, and that transaction should shock us to our core. I, I behold him in the cross. I behold him in his humility. And in, in, the, in, the, in, in the notes I put Philippians 2, he made himself of no reputation. Just that phrase. He's God in the flesh. He can do anything. He can do anything. He can do anything. And he walks in the room taking the form of a bondservant. Let me get the trash. Can I wash your feet? And he humbles himself. And the one who is life, he humbles himself to death. What is this? Isaiah called him the servant of rulers. Jesus said in the age to come, when we're all with him, he is going to serve us. This is crazy. And that's the third way I I meditate on him, him and his servanthood. And I love to walk through John 13 in my mind. I just see Jesus girding himself after dinner, getting on his knees, and wiping the sludge off of his own disciples' feet. And I just go, man. Like, there's something in me, I don't know about you, but there's something in me that rises up and goes, that's not okay, man. It's not okay. And that's, I know why Peter reacted that way. Lord, no, you can't wash me. And Jesus basically calmly tells Peter, he goes, you're so full of pride, you won't let me wash you. And I go, God, I'm just like that. Okay, wash me. And it's by beholding him that he'd be just, he just begins to crush that stuff down on the inside. It's the number one way that we humble ourselves is by beholding him and allowing that to work us. Amen. Secondly, prayer, of course. Humble yourself and pray. And I was just thinking, and I'll just give this to you for today, just thinking about the humility of prayer. You know, if you're in the flesh, you you, you just won't ask someone else to do something for you. You just go do it. You do it when you want it, as you want it done. You just do it, right? Prayer is exactly the opposite. You ask him to do what he wants to do, and then you wait on him to do it. 
Prayer is like the ultimate crushing of pride. I just want to get it done. I'll just go do it myself. Yeah, no. How about sit there and ask me? No, Lord, I'm going to get it done. He goes, no, it won't get done if you do it. Sit down. I I can do this. No, you can't. Sit down. Ask me. Lord, will you do this? He goes, that's not really my will. I go, I'm sorry, what? He goes, yeah, that's not my will. He goes, I actually only answer my will. And I go, oh, wait, so I need to find out what you want. He goes, yeah, that's right. Lord, what do you want? He goes, I really want you to love your enemies. I go, I'm sorry, what? He goes, yeah, I really want you to bless those who curse you. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I want a global thermonuclear revival. He goes, yeah, bless those who curse you. God, I pray that there'd be a blessing on the one that's cursing me. He goes, with your heart, in faith. (laughs) Okay. And then he says this thing, if, you're, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you'll ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. And the whole trick of that is, is as his words abiding in you and you're abiding in him, all of a sudden all your lustful desires that you've been asking him for to get accomplished, they start melting away in the knowledge of his will. And prayer is probably the ultimate in humility because not only do we have to ask him to do what he wants, we have to wait on the answer. That's it, you wait. Prayer involves asking and waiting, and the Lord knew it was going to be the nexus of humility to actually live a life of prayer. We behold him. We live in prayer. Fasting, David said this, <clears throat> I humbled myself with fasting, Psalm 35, 13. I, I mean, I cannot more strongly emphasize and encourage you to pick one day a week just as a normal time and just fast that day. If you have a medical condition, I'm not talking to you, but if, if, you're, if you don't have a medical condition, uh, you, you know, you can fast one day a week. You can live that way. And why? What is that transaction? It puts you in a place of voluntary weakness. And he promises, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. What I always notice is this, that when I begin to operate more in the flesh, there is a corollary with how little I'm fasting. Less fasting, more flesh. Somehow fasting, it causes you to put your flesh down in a way that almost nothing else does. And I mean, we've talked about fasting. We really encourage fasting. It's not a badge. It doesn't make you super spiritual. It's normative Christianity but I would so strongly encourage you one day a week minimum, fast before the Lord. Push yourself back from the table. You'll get that little trembly feeling about 11 o'clock right there before lunch. You're like, oh, I am definitely gonna die today. I mean, you're hungry. I mean, it's just how it is. And guess what? That's the moment you lean into grace. And, And I'll tell you what the falsehood is. You imagine if you're fasting and you're hungry, well, the grace has lifted. You're like, well, I was fasting, but man, there was no grace on it, so I had to eat that cheeseburger for lunch. No, Grace doesn't enable you to all of a sudden not have hunger pangs. Grace enables you that when you have the hunger pangs, you go, Jesus, help. And he sustains you through it. It's the food. When, When the disciples came to Jesus and said, have you eaten? He goes, no. He goes, I have food you don't know of. That's the food that the world doesn't know of. It's feeding on him. And you don't just fast and don't pray. You fast, pray, read the word. Fasting without prayer and reading the word is just a hunger strike. Somebody said, that's a word. (laughs) I've done my share of hunger strikes too. Behold him, pray, fast. Guard your mouth. I got five minutes. This is a huge, huge one. Guard your mouth. David talked about this. He said, I put, I asked the Lord to put a, a guard over my mouth that I wouldn't sin. James said, if you can bridle your tongue, you can be a perfect man, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. We sin with our mouths. Let me, let me just share this really clear. Just because you think something and you have an opinion, that does not mean you should say it. No, really. 
If your opinion doesn't match what Jesus would say, don't say it. In fact, repent of your opinion. So often, see the point about beholding Jesus is to view life through what does he want to, instead of viewing life through what do I want. That's the massive transition. Hazen preached about this about a month ago about decentering yourself. If everything in life is about what you want, what you prefer, what your opinion is, what you're gonna say, I'm gonna give them a piece of my mind. If that's how you think, get saved. Seriously. Like you have to get saved because self is then at the center if that's how you're operating. And what, is, what happens in, in, in Jesus is you're saying, I'm no longer Lord, Jesus is Lord. And all of life has to be viewed through what do you want? What do you want? It's my pleasure to do your will, just whatever you want, Lord. And man, the mouth, he says, a great fire of hell is set on fire by the tongue. You just don't have to say it. We're not to be the people that spout our opinion, that type our opinion, text our opinion all the time. That's not Christianity. He says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Lord, set a guard over my mouth. That's intense when you think about it. I was sitting in the prayer room the other day. This phrase, idle words. I mean, it, just, it was just on my mind. Idle words, idle words, idle words. And, and, and I know the passage. It's in Matthew 12. He says, men will give an account on the day of judgment for every idle word they speak. Feel that, guys. An account on the day of judgment for every idle word. I just, man, I'm going, God, please. <laughs> Delete them all, please. Under the blood, please. And help me not to say things that I'm gonna have to give an account for later. And there is such a culture of accusation and piling on and, oh, I would have done, you know what I would have done? I don't care what you would have done. What would Jesus have done right now? That's, we, we need to get that WWJD back like, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you thinking? What's your opinion? Guard your lips, guard your mouth. Last two and then we'll pray. Serve one another. There's so many verses in the scripture about how we're supposed to serve one another, but Jesus modeled this. Matthew 20, he said, whoever wants to be first among you, you must be, must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So serve one another. It's just as simple as this. As I'm saying it th this afternoon, think about ways you can serve someone. Think about ways you can serve here in the body, serve in your house church, serve in the prayer room. How can you serve? Just figure out how you can employ yourself in serving. It's, it's just not rocket science. There's just something about when you serve, you just lower yourself. Jesus said, he goes, who's greater, the one that sits at the table or the one that serves? They go, the guy that sits at the table. He goes, but I'm among you as one who serves. This is what I'm like. Guys, that's what we have to be like. Serve. Last, prefer. Another way to say it is honor one another. Prefer or honor one another. This verse has been on me so strong lately. Romans 12, 10, it says this. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor or prefer one another above yourselves. Prefer one another. Could you say that? Prefer one another. Oh, wow. Prefer one another. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, just let's try that one more time. Prefer one another. Oh, that's much better. It's, see, it's so not like us. Sometimes I think if we had coffee with Jesus, we'd say, hey, Jesus, what are you into? He goes, ah, oh, just serving everyone, just honoring everybody instead of me. 
just finding out what other people want and doing it for them. And we'd be like, <laughs> he'd, and he'd go, what are you into? Uh, me, I'm into me. I'm into everything I want and what I want to say and what I, what I think. Prefer one another above yourself. It, it just literally means that, like, there's a good seat, there's not as good a seat. Give them the good seat. You're going to lunch, you really want the whatever, and they want the whatever. You know, I'm sitting here, like, right now, I'm thinking, I'd really want, you know, the chicken wings or the big sub sandwich, and they're talking kale salad. I'm like, okay. That's kale salad. That's kale salad. Amen. And I know that's so uber simple, but it, it, it spins out into so many other things. How can I serve you? How can I prefer you? What's Jesus' dream for you? How do I serve that for you? How do I get behind and push you into what God has for you? This is how the church is supposed to live, not walking in the room going, what about me, what about me, what about me? The church is supposed to walk in the room and go, how about you? What can I do for you? How can I love you? fun thing to do, just search one another. Just search one another. In your, in your King James little Bible search program, search one another and look at everything it says we're supposed to do for one another. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. All those one another's go in that second commandment. And it's such a key to humility, guys. We behold him, we fast, we pray, we guard our mouth, we serve one another, and we prefer one another. Amen. All right, let's stand.